I don't know um, about you all, if you all have a verse or a passage in the scriptures that, quite frankly, scare you to death, right? I don't know if you have a passage in scripture that you're reading, you go, wow, I don't, I don't want to read that passage for a long time after this. Um, I have one of those passages that to me is perhaps, for me at least, the scariest passage in all of Scripture. This is for me. This may not be for you, but it is, for me, the scariest passage in all of Scripture. And it's in Matthew chapter 7. We'll get to Revelation in just a minute. But Matthew chapter 7 and verses 21 through 23, Jesus is speaking and he says the following. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Wow. Is I don't know about you, but that passage scares me. That passage is, is the kind of passage I don't sleep well at night if I were to dwell on that kind of passage. It's the kind of passage that I think, I hope I am not one of those whom Jesus says, depart from me, you evildoers. In some translations, that's how it reads. In this case, it's much more benign. It seems like lawlessness, but still do not miss the absolute indicting word that Jesus uses there to say to them, Depart from me, those of you who have done this, for I never knew you. You evildoers, you lawbreakers, I never knew you. And what is so hard about that is that these individuals ministered in Jesus' name as they said to Jesus, I casted out demons in your name. I performed many miracles in your name. I did all of these things in your name. And yet to stand before God at the end of a life, lived, at, at, at least in what they thought, was ministering uh, for Jesus and using Jesus' name to do many great things, to stand before him and for him to utter those words. Wow. That is scary. That is scary. I mean, whether or not we, we realize this, and, and I realize that we have to go through our day, Right? We have to go through our day. Every single night, I don't mean to depress you today, but I may do that. Um, I just want to tell you this, that every single day we take risks. Every single day, the moment we step out of our bed, it's a risk. It's a risk to stay in our house. It's a risk to go out of our house. There is a risk that the day that we start off alive, we may not end up alive at the end. Right? Every single day is like that. We don't know what the day will hold. We don't know when we will meet Jesus face to face. And my only hope is, is that when that day comes, because it will come, is that Jesus does not utter these words to me. And my hope is he doesn't utter those words to all of you. At all. Here's the question this morning. How is it that a person, or even for that matter, a church, can do all of these great things, can follow Jesus, can use in, in, in Jesus' name to cast out demons, to perform miracles, to do what just wonderful things, it seems, only to find out at the end that Jesus never knew them, that they, in fact, were not following Jesus, that they, in fact, were not doing what Jesus had commanded them to do, or more importantly, were not the kind of people that Jesus wanted them to be. How does a group of Christians or a Christian or a church get to that point? How in the world does that happen? This morning, as we look at the book of Revelation, we're going to probably, at least to some degree, see how this can happen. How a church that is there to worship Jesus can get so far off track that all of a sudden now they are in danger of having these very words uttered to them 
a church that is at least, as we're going to find out, was doing great things, but really, in reality, they were not following Jesus. How indicting is that? And here's the more important thing. Not only will we see, perhaps, a little glimpse, at least, of what a church looks like when it is doing great things and yet really is not following Jesus, but more importantly, how can we or how can this church, what does Jesus offer to this specific church and therefore offer to us so that we do not fall into that kind of rhythm, that we do not fall into that kind of behavior, that we do not do what this church was doing and that this church, what was doing, can turn from what it was doing to once again embrace Jesus. How can we do that? That's what we're going to look at this morning as we make our way through this series that we've been looking at in the book of Revelation, specifically chapters 2 and 3, in a series, of course, we've been calling Shift, that we've been looking at ways that we can shift from patterns in our own lives and certainly in our own churches from one behavior to maybe more of a God-honoring behavior. And we are going to continue this morning to look at shifting from what I have called the casual to the captivated. From the casual to the captivated. And what we're going to see this morning, I hope, out of this passage, is we are going to see, and it's only six verses. That's all we're going to be in today. Six verses. And, and what I hope that we're going to see is not only what this church was struggling with, but also what Jesus shares in how to get out of that struggle. So therefore, this is how this passage is going to read this morning. 30,000 foot view. It's going to start out with Jesus giving them a diagnosis. And then he's going to give them a prescription. And then he's going to give them a warning of what will happen if they don't follow the prescription. Right? Does that make sense? No show of hands here. How many of you have been to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, listen, your blood pressure is a little high. You need to do this. And if you don't do this, um, chances are this is what will happen to you. Right? We've all had probably at some point someone, whether a doctor, a parent, a boss, or whatever, tell us that maybe we are behaving in ways that are not healthy, that maybe come along and point that out, tell us what we should do to help correct that behavior, and then maybe give us a warning if we don't do this correction. This is the same way that this passage is going to read. And as we go through this, we're going to see what Jesus offers. We're going to see what Jesus offers. Now, let me start out before I give you the first point out of three that we're going to see today of how we can shift from the casual to the captivated, and I'll make the case in just a little bit as to why we need to do this, and what does casual look like, and what does captivated look like, I'll get there. But I want to start out this morning by looking at the first verse of this, and it says, uh, the first half of this verse, and it says this, of chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, now remember, the Apostle John is on the island of Patmos. He's in exile. Uh, it's not a luxury place to be, by the way, okay? He is, uh, at this point, the only direct follower of Jesus that was not martyred. Every other follower of Jesus had been martyred, had been absolutely killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. John, of course, he says, whom Jesus loved, right? Because if I was writing my own story, I would make sure I would look well, right? John doesn't skip a beat. Um, he is the only one who is now living, but he is living in exile. And by the way, Jesus shared that this was going to happen. When Peter and John were together and Peter had um, gone about and denied Jesus three times and he was restoring him, he told Peter, Jesus that being, that you will be led by the hand to a place where you do not want to go. Basically, you are going to be martyred. You're going to be killed. And Peter's response is just classic. He looks at John and he says, well, Jesus, what about John? Give him his fortune, right? Tell him he too is going to die. And Jesus' response is also classic. And he says, don't worry about John, worry about yourself. You know? So we know that John is writing this message that he has received from Jesus on the island of Patmos while he is in exile, 
and he gets these messages to these seven churches, and we know that all seven of these churches are in western Turkey, and all of them have unique issues, problems, everything else that are going on here. And Jesus says this, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, um, and what that means is, again, is that Jesus is writing to the angel of the church, most likely the pastor or some other leader there, most likely, um, and, and remember, his approach is always unique to every single church. In this case, he says, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says the following. And basically what this means is the seven spirits of God is the Holy Spirit or the sevenfold spirit or the perfect spirit. That's what that means. Working in these churches. And not only that, he says the one who holds the seven stars. And that's just a reminder that Jesus is the one who sustains these seven churches. And if we need any reminder, let me say this, say this again. We do not sustain the church. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who sustains his church, Big C Church, as well as local churches. I hear this quote a lot, and, and I, I don't disagree with it. However, um, I, I also know that we are not responsible in this way. And the quote is this. We are always one generation away from extinction when it comes to Christianity. We're always one generation away. Basically meaning that there are no second or third generations without the gospel being shared to other people. Right? Now, I don't disagree with that. That we are on the verge always of extinction. Here's where I disagree. We as Christians, luckily, our responsibility isn't to keep the church alive. Jesus does that. Our responsibility, as we'll find out later, is to do what he has called us to do, and we'll find out exactly what that is. But our responsibility isn't to keep the church alive. That's Jesus' job. Our responsibility, you know, the church, thankfully, isn't going to die because of Christians. If that were the case, it would have died long ago. And it isn't going to live because of Christians. It lives because of the power of the Holy Spirit being as the sustainer of these churches and the church in general, because this is Jesus's bride. So brothers and sisters, yes, we can kill a local church, but we cannot kill the church. It's just not going to happen. Okay? It's just not going to happen. And Jesus says this to this church in Sardis. And Sardis, by the way, uh, was a, at the time a wealthy city, it was built at first, it was an old part built on a cliff that overlooked a valley, and then as the city grew, they built in the valley. It was a, a wealthy city. At one point, an earthquake destroyed the city. The emperor Tiberius allocated funds to rebuild the city. Therefore, in honor of that, they, they erected a huge monument to him. Um, and so it was, a, it was an incredibly wealthy, wealthy city. And yet he says this, I know your deeds, and that you have a name, and that you are alive, and yet you are dead. This is the first in this letter, in the letters that we have looked at, that even the compliment that Jesus gives here is not a compliment. It's not a compliment. Jesus says, I know your deeds. In other words, nothing that gets past Jesus. He knows exactly what goes on in his churches. He knows exactly what's happening. And he doesn't, he doesn't miss a beat and that you have a name or a reputation in the city, and that you are alive, that you're doing great things, that you're possibly even using my name to cast out demons and to do great, these great miracles, and that you're doing all of these wonderful things. And yet Jesus ends with this, and yet you are dead. How can that be? How can a church that is doing great things, how can a church that is just unbelievable in its uh, whatever it is doing and have this reputation of being this active, alive church, Jesus says to this church, you're dead. How can this be? We'll find out in just a little bit. But that's the diagnosis. You're alive, at least the reputation is that you're alive. It seems that as though you're alive, but really you're dead. That's the diagnosis. What's the prescription? How is it that this church can begin to shift from being what might be considered a casual church to a captivated one? How can this church begin to shift 
from one of being seemingly alive to being really alive. And Jesus offers three things. And I think what he offers to this church is also a, a, or a prescription rather for us as well. Not us specifically, it can, but also as a church in general. And the first one is this. Resolve to finish the work God called you to do. Resolve to finish the work God called you to do. Jesus writes or says the following, Be constantly alert and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of God. In other words, what God had called this church to do, they were not finishing. What God had said, this is what I want you to do, they did not complete. And Jesus says to them, finish the work I have called you to do. I have called you to do. Now here's the question. What does a dead church look like? And how is it, and, and what is the church's responsibility or what is their call that they are supposed to do? A dead church can look like any of the following things, for instance. It looks to be doing the right things and active, but there is no movement of the Holy Spirit. It's lost on its mission and now is just simply going through the motions. And it has lost the love for the gospel. In other words, that there is probably within churches, and specifically in this church, because of its wealth, because of its position, because of its, um, the fact that it was rebuilt and, and you know, Tiberius uh, did this, is that most likely many of these Christians probably we might consider to be casual Christians. Casual Christians. Christians who, quite frankly, looked at their faith as a way of just another add-on to the life they were living. Casual Christians. Christians that were maybe not as passionate about the gospel as they should have been. Passionate about what Jesus was calling them to do. Casual Christians that were living a life that was comfortable. And as long as it was comfortable, and as long as their faith in Jesus Christ was comfortable, they were good with it. But the moment it began to get rough, that chances are they might back away. Now here's the relevancy of that. Is that in our country, George Barna, who is a kind of the gallop of Christianity. He does a lot of surveys, a lot of polls, a lot of studies. He found this in 2009 study that in this country, casual Christians represent 66% of the adult population. 66% of the adult population in our country he considers or has labeled casual Christians. And this is how he kind of defines casual Christianity is Casual Christianity is faith in moderation. It allows them to feel religious without having to prioritize their faith. Christianity is a low-risk, predictable proposition for this tribe, providing a faith perspective that is not demanding. A casual Christian can be all things that they esteem, a nice human being, a family person, religious, an exemplary citizen, a reliable employee, and never have to publicly defend or represent difficult moral or social positions or even lose much sleep over their private choices as long as they mean well and they generally do their best. From their perspective, casual Christians' brand of faith practice is genuine, realistic, and practical. To them, casual Christianity is the best of all worlds. It encourages them to be a better person than if they, than, than if they had been irreligious. Yet it is not a faith in which they feel compelled to heavily invest themselves in. That's a casual Christian. A Christian who looks at Christianity and says, that's a nice add-on. I can do that and still live a nice, comfortable, safe life. I can do that. It's beautiful. I don't know about you, but I am not surprised that nearly two-thirds of the adults in this country are labeled or called casual Christians. If you look at our country, and we've shared this before, and I'll share it again, we as Christians are blessed to be in this country. We have an incredibly comfortable existence in this country. And not only that, as Christians, we have a seat at the table oftentimes when it comes to governance, when it comes to authority, when it comes to helping to craft all sorts of 
policies or even influence on culture and society. We have a special place. Even churches have a special tax exemption with the U.S. government. Do you know we don't have to pay taxes on our property? We can develop this property and not a dime goes to Oro Valley. And all of God's people said, right? <laughs> right? We can, not here in Arizona, because Arizona doesn't allow this, but I'm surprised actually. But if we lived in other states, we could purchase things at stores, like when I lived in Wisconsin, we had a nonprofit you know, status there. We could purchase stuff from the stores and not pay sales tax and get it tax-free. We could go to OfficeMax. We can go to Best Buy. We can go to all those places. And because we showed our tax-exempt number and everything, we got to buy things tax-free. We didn't have to pay anything. Not only that, but as churches and as a religious group, we are exempted from even participating in things that other law-abiding citizens may have to participate in because of the fact that our religious beliefs would be compromised if we participated in them. As brethren, we have three negatives. Not that we're negative all the time, but we have three negatives. One of the negatives is we believe as brethren is non-swearing. We believe we should not take an oath, that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. Well, the government allows for an accommodation of that. That if you are testifying, you can say, I do not want to take the typical oath that I will tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. Okay, we'll bring out, so help you God. Where in the, other, where in the world would you find that? In an oath. The President of the United States, after he takes the oath of office, and by the way, George Washington is the one who added these words. It's not in the Constitution. He added the words, so help me God. That became standard fare. That's a beautiful thing. We as Christians in this country enjoy freedoms and privileges that most churches and Christians around the world could only dream of. And because of that, it might lend us to the fact that we might be casual in our faith. Because we think it is just in many ways normal. It is simply a part of our society. It is simply a part of our culture. It is simply a part of where we live. And we begin to take it for granted. And we begin to take that stuff as though it is a right instead of a privilege. And unfortunately, we may even be tempted to act that way when we see these privileges potentially violated. Do you know as a pastor, do you know what I get to do as a pastor? Let me tell you the tax breaks I get. Thank you very much, church. Is that as a pastor, I get to take a double deduction on my mortgage, right? All of us get to take a deduction on our mortgage, but a pastor gets to take, take a double deduction. What do I mean by that? It's because I get to have a housing allowance that is tax-free. So anything I spend on my house, the government can't tax me on. So not only do I not get a, a, a tax deduction for my mortgage normally, but I also get to deduct any payments I make on my mortgage as a tax deduction. How many of you want to be a pastor? <laughs> right? I mean, it's, I get to do that. I get, now, not only that, is that the higher the housing allowance that I get to claim, the lower my income. The higher the housing allowance, non-taxed, is, the lower my income is. Therefore, if I'm able to say, you know what, I'm going to spend $50,000 on my house, I get to, to deduct cost of light bulbs, toilet paper, all of that stuff. Anything that I pay for my house, I can deduct. It's tax-free. It's a housing allowance. And I could say, if I spend $50,000 this year on my housing allowance, and I tell the deacon board, this is what I'm going to spend on my house, then anything left over is taxed. Well, if it left over is like $15,000 or $20,000 of income, do you realize how much I get to pay in taxes off that amount? Not much. Not much. I get to be put in a whole new tax bracket. Now, here's the flip side. I could qualify for welfare. <laughs> because, you know, the income is so little. Never mind that the housing allowance is huge. Right? You could, you know, pastors, some pastors I know, and I don't think they should ever do this, take advantage of that sort of thing. That's abuse to me. You know you don't need that. So don't take it. 
from those who actually really do need it. So I've, I've never done that, okay? Just, you, you can be proud of me, okay, church? I've never done that, okay? But we enjoy all of these incredible benefits. It's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. Now, I don't want any motion at the annual celebration saying, uh, I'd like to change the pastor's salary. Okay, let's don't go there, okay? Um, but I just, I just share that with you, is that our culture that we live in, the, the country that we live in, is just awesome and beautiful and privileged that sometimes it can cause us as Christians to become incredibly casual about our faith because we don't know what persecution really is. We think persecution is that, the, that, that we can't, that we might have to wear masks or that we may have to, you know, um, uh, entertain some sort of view or whatever else. We think that persecution is being told that you can't gather together. That it's not persecution in the sense of what we think it is. As churches, we are incredibly privileged in this country. And that goes for mosques, that goes for temples, that goes for any religious organization, by the way. We are incredibly blessed. And so it can lend itself to becoming very casual. We can do things in Jesus' name, we can do things to serve others and all this kind of stuff, but because of our casualness, because of the fact that we are not necessarily fully bought in to what Jesus has called us to do, and more importantly called us to be, chances are we can run the risk that this church in Sardis ran and that we can, although doing great things, in the end be told, you're dead. So Jesus says to them, resolve to finish the work I've given you to do. Resolve to do that. We'll get into the next point is this, what is that work? And it's this, and this is the second point. Remember why you were called to it. Jesus says this, the first part of verse 3. So remember what you have received and heard. Remember what you have received and heard. What is it that this church has received and heard? And therefore, in that receiving and hearing, that they are supposed to complete. And it's very simple. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. That is what they have received that is what they have heard. Now, we have shared this before, and I'll share it again. The gospel is simply this. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus won. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus won. That's the gospel message right there. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus won. I want to share two scripture passages with you that kind of put more flesh around that definition. Uh, an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. The Old Testament passage is from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, and Isaiah writes the, the following. However, it was our sickness that he himself bore, and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. In other words, he is referring to Jesus, and that all of a sudden now, that there are those who will look at Jesus and the fact that he would have been beaten and eventually crucified, that there was something wrong with him. And Isaiah says there was nothing wrong with him. It was what was wrong with us that, he took, that, he did, that happened to him. And Isaiah goes on and says this, but he was pierced for our offenses, he was crushed for our wrongdoings, the punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. If you ever mark in your Bible, I encourage you to mark that passage right there, that line. By his wounds we are are healed verse 6 all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way but the lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him period that's the gospel message what we deserved jesus took the punishment we should have received jesus instead received it that's the gospel message here's a new testament passage romans chapter 3 Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 24. And this is Paul writing, and this is what he writes in these verses. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, all of us have fallen short of God's 
unbelievably high standard, his glorious standard. But thanks be to God, because through his gift, we are saved. John Calvin, the late theologian and reformer, said this about the gospel. The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. In other words, it's just not simply words. It is life itself. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. Pastor and author Tim Keller says this about the gospel in defining it. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe, and yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I mean, does the gospel message of the fact that Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus won, penetrate into your heart? The fact that there is a glorious standard that you and I could never have met that Jesus Christ did for our sake that the wounds that he suffered should have been our wounds, that the punishment that he took on should have been our punishment, that the only thing that you and I as Christians, and more importantly as human beings, deserve is death and separation from God himself. That there is nothing that God looks at us and says, whatever we can do, there is not, never going to be good enough. That whatever we can say, it's never going to be good enough. That only because of Jesus, we are saved. Do you believe this? Does this penetrate into the very recesses of your heart? Is this something that inspires you? Is this something that causes you to say, this is why I get up in the morning, is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what that gospel has done in my life? Is this the thing that motivates you in everything that you do, in the job that you may go to, in the golf game that you may play, in the friends that you may visit, in the churches that you may attend, in the summit groups that you may be a part of, in the relationships that you have and how you act in those relationships, are you empowered by the gospel? Does it inspire you? That is what Jesus is saying to this church. Resolve to finish that work of the gospel that you have, have received and that you have heard Remember that gospel mis uh, message. Remember that gospel message. And by the way, go and share it. Resolve to finish that work and remember why you were called to it. Thirdly, and this is the last one, return back to that purpose. Jesus says this at the end of verse 3, or near it, and keep it and repent. Turn back to it. Turn back to that purpose. Turn back to that purpose, that gospel-centered message. Captive Christians are those that are empowered and inspired by the gospel. Captive Christians build their lives around Jesus and his gospel and the mission to share, to love, to serve those around them, not out of necessarily altruistic motives, which are good motives, or even vanity, but because of their deep love for Jesus Christ and for others because Jesus loved them as well. I've shared this once and I'll share it again. I have told many people that, listen, our mission is simple. All we have to do is love the people that Jesus loved and we can hate everyone else. That's all we have to do. Let's just love the people that Jesus loved and hate everyone else. That's all we have to do. All of us as captive Christians, captive Christians understand this. Captive Christians embrace this. Captive Christians have allowed that gospel message to penetrate into the recesses of their hearts and they are on fire because of that gospel message. That is a captive Christian. The gospel message has just incredibly gotten hold of them. And they are passionate about it. President John F. Kennedy visited NASA for the first time after announcing that unbelievable ambition 
of putting a man on the moon before the end of the decade. And during his tour of the facility, he met a janitor who was carrying a broom down the hallway. And the president then casually asked the janitor what he did for NASA, and the janitor replied without skipping a beat, I'm helping put a man on the moon. I'm wondering as Christians, and as those of us here at Summit Ridge, if maybe we might learn something from what this janitor's perspective is, is that this janitor knew that although he was a janitor, he was a part of a movement that was much bigger than just what his janitorial duties were limited to. He understand that his janitorial duties were not just simply to sweep floors and empty trash cans and wash windows and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, his job ultimately was a part of a movement, a mission that was to put a man on the moon. Brothers and sisters, I'm wondering if we need the same perspective even of what we do here at Summit Ridge. You see, it is so easy for us, even here at Summit Ridge, for those of us who are Christians and followers of Jesus to become casual Christians, to get into a rhythm or a routine or a pattern of doing the same things over and over and over again and realizing that maybe the reason why we're doing those patterns over isn't because of the fact that we have new ways of wanting to get to people, but perhaps we're doing it because we're comfortable in that pattern. We're familiar with those patterns. We understand those patterns. We know what to expect in those patterns. And we love clarity. And clarity breeds routine. How many of you have the same thing for breakfast every single morning? How many of you have it at the same time every single morning? Right? Me, it's, it's, if I'm not working out at 7 a.m. on the dot, I've got to have a 7 a.m. Same, same breakfast for eight years now. Eight years. Right? And I love breakfast. Breakfast is my favorite meal of the day. What do I eat? <laughs> I eat a banana, two pieces of toast with peanut butter on it, and two cups of coffee. Count on it. One with creamer and one without. You can't be, you can only be guilty once. That's my guilty drink for the day. It's my guilty drink for the day. I don't drink soda. I don't drink any of that stuff. I cut that out. But I will allow myself a little bit of, and then during the day, if I happen to be studying at a coffee shop, then it's a decaf iced Americano. Mm. Can't have too much caffeine. I swore off the hard stuff in college. I had a big thing of Mountain Dew. I ended up going to the hospital thinking I was having a heart attack. And the doctor looked at me like I was a fool. <laughs> swore off the hard stuff ever since then. I've never had Mountain Dew since I was 21. Won't ever have it again. Uh, we are so routine. We do the same things every single... You, every, how many of you go to work at the same time and get off at the same time? Every single day. It is so easy in those rhythms, in those routines, to forget why you're doing what you're doing. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you today why we do what we do, regardless if we do it here or if you do it out there. We do it because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do it because Jesus loves those people and he wants those people to know him. We do it. I don't care what it is that we do. I don't care what it is that we do. Maybe you're here and, you're, and, you're, and you've got some job of, of helping out with hospitality. Maybe you're a greeter or maybe you're a coffee maker. Well, Tom has that pretty well down, but he's, getting, he's loosening up more. Um, inviting people into that. He does a great job on that, by the way, right? We are spoiled. We are spoiled. How many of you get flavored? If you ask Tom, Tom, I'd like to have a request of a flavored coffee. He'll get it. Hey, can you get more Reese's uh, uh, creamer? He'll get it. We are spoiled. But you know what? It's not just about greeting people. Do you know what I would wish if someone asked you, hey, what do you do here at the church? Oh, man, I share the gospel. I share the gospel. I greet people coming into this building and I want them to know that Jesus loves them and that they are welcomed here because I know that's Jesus wanting them to be here because he loves them. And because he loves them, I love them. My son is the one who's now cleaning the church, right? You know what would be a great thing if you asked him? Steve, what do you do here? I share the gospel. I make sure that this facility is clean and safe so that anyone who comes in here does not get sick that what they're walking into is a clean, sanitary building. I share the gospel. Jesus cares about that. Do you know what's happening tonight? No, you don't. Let me tell you what's happening tonight. 
one of the churches that meets here, their youth group, instead of having the normal youth group, you know what they're going to do here tonight? They're going to do a service project at our church. A service project. They're going to weed. They're going to touch up paint. They're going to repair little things. They're going to suspend their whole youth group so they can come and do that. You know what they're doing? What are they doing, church? They're sharing the gospel. By the way, uh, if anybody wants, I'd love to have little snacks and drinks. If anybody wants to help with me with that this evening, come up to me after church. I think it'd be great to have some sort of table set up to thank these kids for doing this. They're sharing the gospel. Let me just say this. Don't you ever think that any, what you might consider or what might be considered a minimal task, whatever it might be, there are deacons who every month come together and they look at numbers and the budget and they look at all of the details of the budget and they look at how to care for the facility and how to make sure we can make sure that everything is running correctly and properly and safely. You know what they're doing in those meetings? They're sharing the gospel. They're sharing the gospel. Don't you ever think that no matter what task you might be doing here, and I don't care if it's from the littlest thing, from going out and picking up trash or cutting weeds or cutting branches or taking out trees, which that's God's work. God said we can do it. We're doing it. Um, whatever it is, don't you ever, even up to the fact that you are a part of a team that's looking at budgets or constitutions or whatever else, know this, you are sharing the gospel. You are sharing the gospel. If you have a job that might seem meaningless to others, and maybe you yourself begin to think that it's meaningless, let me just tell you this, it's not. You are sharing the gospel. You are sharing the gospel when you do that job to Jesus' glory. You are sharing the gospel. Never forget this, church. This is what Jesus, I believe, was telling this church in Sardis. You are sharing the gospel. And if ever we get to a point where we're just simply going through the motions and we lose sight of the fact that what we are doing here is to share the gospel, then yes, we need to kill it off. This is Jesus' warning if we don't take this to heart. He says this, and this is at the end of verse 3. Then if you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. By the way, what is this similar to, this line? Doesn't Jesus liken this to how he might come in the final days, right? That I will come like a thief in the night? Do you know who freaks out about that more than anyone else? It's the Christians. Really, brothers and sisters? It should not seem like a thief when Jesus comes. It'd be like, hey, Jesus, I knew you were coming, man. Come on in. A thief you don't know is coming. The only ones who should know who is coming are those who don't know Jesus. This doesn't scare me. I know it scares a lot of Christians. Don't be scared of that. He says this, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you, and this is great, have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They will not be surprised. They are absolutely all about the gospel. And Jesus says, those individuals, they are doing good things. They are not soiled. The one who overcomes will be clothed the same way, in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I believe Jesus is speaking to us today. And I believe he is calling us, if we are not already awake, to wake up. Church, let us resolve to finish the work that Jesus gave us. Let us remember why we are doing what we are doing. And let us always be willing to go back to that when we need to. Let us share the gospel. Let us serve and love people. And let us never forget why we do that. Amen? Father, I am grateful that you have given your church a mission that you've given your body a mission, and that you have given us here at Summit Ridge a purpose and a mission, Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would never, ever forget why we are here. I pray that we would never forget 
the privilege that we have and the movement that we are part of, Jesus, of sharing your gospel, of bringing your kingdom to this earth. And more than that, Jesus, that you have called Summit Ridge to bring the gospel to northwest Tucson and beyond. I pray, Father, for every single one of us that we would be captivated by this gospel. Not a gospel that we think it should be, but the gospel that it is about you, Jesus, and about your work, and about your glory, and about what you have done, and the result that we are now alive. Jesus, may that message captivate us and inspire us and motivate us to be your church. And may we one day stand with confidence before your throne. And instead of hearing those words, depart, me, depart from me, for I never knew you, Jesus, I pray that we would hear those words, well done, good and faithful servants. Come. That is my prayer, Jesus. And I hope it is our prayer. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.